I'm rethinking this blanket. I like it. Thank you, but I'm just a little warm. I'm swimming in this sweater. I I, but I do like the sweater, though. It's got a big neck. You know what they say about a big neck. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> misfits. This is Kate. And this is Kevin. Welcome to Horrorwood. did thank you for reminding me because we need to shout her out yeah glinda allen pratt glinda allen thank pratt. you so much this is your shout out welcome to the party woo, woo, woo. thank you so much <clears throat> truly we really appreciate thank your you. support um especially this time of year because right now everything sucks for everyone <laughs> <laughs> it really does we're all melting down we're all having issues it's so stressful i feel like it's across the board yeah everyone i i'm feeling like this collective sort of anger (laughs) in the city mine's not anger it's just like this overwhelming stress stress and anxiety yes we put a a story on instagram as you know Mm -hmm. and it was just like, hey, we're having a rough day. You know, tell us something fun and great. And there were people were like, yeah, it's not fun and great. Like, I just want to join in. I'm also stressed. <laughs> like, everything sucks. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice that there, there was a space to express. Yes, the for horror. sure. The horror of life. Ah, but it's the holiday season. It is officially December. It is December. And uh, the holidays are coming up fast. It's getting festive up in here. And I thought... What better way to celebrate than to ruin one of your favorite holiday movies? Kate's coming at this from a malicious perspective. (laughs) I'm not, but there is a lot of shit behind this movie that, you know, kind of gets glossed over. Yes. Uh, We're talking about Home Alone and the actors involved. Now, I knew this was going to be a big fatty, 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 fat episode because there's so much with the cast members, particularly Macaulay Culkin, and I wanted to really dive in deep. Sure. And so I was like, maybe I make this a two-parter because also like it was just a lot to write and I didn't know if I was going to finish everything in time. So I put a little poll out. I put it on Patreon, but like it was public and just to see what people would like. Would Mm -hmm. they like a two-parter or do they want one big-ass episode? And 73% said... We want a fatty episode. Whoa. So you are getting it all right here. Settle in. You're about to hear 38 pages of my notes. (laughs) It's the longest one I've ever written. When you kept saying fatty fat, I was imagining a steak with all the like fat trim around it. Oh, well, now that sounds delicious. Not as delicious as Matt's lasagna, though, because... Oh, I'm excited for that. It's, I'm really excited We're having that. lasagna after this that Matt is making, and it's really good. I'm so excited. I only ever eat, like, frozen lasagnas. Oh, get ready. You're going to be so thrilled. So today, we're going to be talking about some child abuse, multiple arrests among the cast members, stunts gone wrong, assault charges, 
a rape allegation, a possible connection to a murder-for-hire plot, drug addiction, and death. Happy holidays, everybody! Well, fuck. (laughs) So, yes, content warnings all around for sexual assault, domestic abuse, child abuse, and uh, a lot of tragedy. Here we go. I love how we were just like, we're so stressed, and then Kate's like, (laughs) get fucking ready for this gnarly get under shit. your get under your warm fuzzy blankets grab your cocoa or your vodka and get ready to cry exactly but there are some fun parts oh, about good. this too I and like i do it. try to end it on an up note so so there is that we, That's ca- okay. we have that going for us you know i actually prefer home alone 2 oh interesting i do talk about that a do little you? bit in here. yeah I, the first one i'm not the biggest fan of but oh, the second one i was a big fan of home really alone. Okay. oh yeah Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's iconic. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I've seen it a few times. Sure. But, yeah, I like number two. It's nothing to do. Anyway, go ahead, Kate. <clears throat> Kate looked at me like, just shut up. No, I wasn't. I was clearing my throat. <laughs> I wasn't that at all. <laughs> what has become a beloved holiday classic almost didn't get made due to budget constraints. There's an episode about Home Alone in the Netflix series, The Movies That Made Us, I highly recommend watching it if you can. I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that's in there, but it's all really fascinating. So check that out if you can. John Hughes got the idea for Home Alone when he was getting ready to go on vacation. He was making a list of everything he didn't want to forget, and he kind of joked, like, don't forget the kids. Did he check that list? Twice. Twice. We're fired. (laughs) We'll see ourselves out. Thank you. Happy holidays, everyone. (laughs) So... Once he thought about that and the worry of leaving a kid behind, an idea was born. He wrote the role of Kevin McAllister specifically for Macaulay Culkin because he was so impressed by him after having just worked with him in Uncle Buck. You looked very suspicious about that. I don't know. I just, like, someone writing a script for a child seemed creepy to me. But then you said, oh, he had already worked with him. Yes, yes. Sorry. When you first said that, I was like... (laughs) Also, it's John Hughes. Like, everything he did was... Golden. Well, I mean, he did so many like teen teen movies. Okay. Hughes wrote the entire first draft in nine days. Chris Columbus had come off directing a film called Heartbreak Hotel, which was a disaster. And he didn't know if he'd ever get a chance to direct anything again. John Hughes wanted to give him that chance and offered him National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I So that's one of my favorites. Is it? It is, 100%. Let me ruin that for you. No, Kate, stop. <laughs> John Hughes wrote and was producing the Christmas Vacation, and Chris was thrilled. He was like, I love Christmas. Yes, let's go. <laughs> of Christmas. And then he met Chevy Chase. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh. It is widely known in the industry that Chevy Chase is one giant asshole. And he treated Chris Columbus like shit. Oh, no. Chris was still kind of a newbie, and Chase didn't think he was up to the task of directing him. But Chris really wanted to prove himself. So he just kept working. He shot the second unit. So a lot of establishing shots. Some of his shots of downtown Chicago are still in the movie. But then in another meeting with Chevy Chase, Chase was an even bigger asshole to him than the last time. Chris called up John Hughes and basically said, look, I appreciate the opportunity, but I cannot work with this guy. There is no way I can stay on this film. And John was like, all right, 
And two weeks later, he sent Chris two more scripts. And one of them was Home Alone. Ah, I'm glad he gave Chris another chance. Like, he obviously, like, you know. Believed in him. him. And yeah. And really was the only one willing to give him a chance Mm -hmm. at that point. Because he, Chris Columbus is like a big deal. A big deal. He directed the first two Harry Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's kind of a big deal. That's an inside joke from another time, another place. John put a note on the scripts asking if Chris would be interested in directing either of them. And Chris loved the premise of Home Alone. And he was like, it's a Christmas movie. And he was like, yes, I love Christmas. He was able to hire a lot of the people he'd worked with on Heartbreak Hotel. And John Hughes, who was also producing the film, wanted it to be shot in Chicago. He did a lot of his stuff in Chicago because he liked being away from the big studios of L.A. So there are a ton of Chicago actors in it. Hughes pitched the film to Warner Brothers, who agreed to do it on a budget of $10 million. John assured them he could do it for that amount. At the time, movies were being made for about $70 million. $10 million honestly is pennies. But they get to work. Once they secured their shooting locations, which Kevin and I are going to go to. We're going to go on a field trip. It's going to be so Another fun. Another one. I'm Another excited. one. The crew set up their production offices in New Trier High School. The home they used for the McAllisters was owned by John and Cynthia Abensheen. I'm probably saying that wrong. I think you're saying it exactly right. Thank you. And they agreed to let the production use their house. Homeowners get paid typically a few thousand dollars if a film crew uses their home. And on the surface, I see your face and you're like, ooh, this sounds great. It does sound great at first. Because production puts you up in a hotel or an apartment, your home is in a movie, and you make some money. But so much shit can go wrong on a set. A lot of times, houses are destroyed that the money that they make... Goes back into fixing it. Exactly. Oh, well, fuck that. The Abensheens were told shooting would take five to six weeks. Jacqueline Buxbaum, the locations manager told the family that under the contract, if the crew needed to tear down a wall while they, were, while they weren't there, they could just go ahead and do it. No. So she was like, if you don't want your house destroyed, you should probably stick around. So Cynthia, John, and their six-year-old daughter all moved into their primary bedroom upstairs. They brought up a hot plate with them so that they could cook, although they did have access to the food that was there for the production. The catering. Yes, so they didn't have to cook much, and there was a food truck that was always parked outside, which their daughter thought was the most amazing thing. What food truck was it? I don't know, but I bet it was tacos. I bet it was delicious. (laughs) It's that lobster truck that roams the place. That roams the place. (laughs) (laughs) That that roams just the roaming lobster. (laughs) No, there's a food truck that goes around Chicago and the surrounding. It's a lobster. Uh, oh, the angry crab? crab? Yeah, uh, no. No. We don't know. No. I follow them on Facebook. Mm. Basically, when you're watching Home Alone and you see the exterior shots of the home, just know that the actual homeowner- homeowners are in an upstairs bedroom making sure no one tears a wall down. <laughs> they're hot plate. They're just like huddled up there oh, with a hot plate. I mean, fair enough, though. Like, if they're going to come in and fuck up your house. Exactly. nice I mean, honestly, house. if... A production ever comes to you and is like, can we use Don't your home it. for filming? Do not do it. Even if they say, here's wow. 10 ground. 10 ground. 10 ground. <laughs> that, that's what they say to make you think it's going to be money. And then they're like, oh, no. Here are coffee grinds. Here's some. 
I don't know where I I'm going. I can get this for my apartment. And it wasn't just for five or six weeks. Production stretched five and a half months. Stretch. Almost half a year living in their bedroom. That's ridiculous. I mean, granted, it was a mansion, so, you know, they had that going for them. But still, they it's a come lot. Out, they come out, like, all pale and, like, mole people. <laughs> Mole people. What are mole people? Like, like people who get locked underground. Underground. Oh. You know what? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Those who know know. Okay. Mole people. My. The interior of the house was too small to shoot in, especially all the stunts and gags that they had to do. So with the exception of the entryway that can be seen when the front door is open, the crew built a set inside the gym of that high school. Which was the same high school used for some of the shoots for other John Hughes movies, such as Uncle Buck and Sixteen Candles. But as the crew got into pre-production, it quickly became apparent to Chris and John that they needed more money. Not a lot by industry standards, but they asked Warner Brothers to allow an increase from $10 million to $14.7 million. I mean, that's not terrible. It really isn't. Warner Brothers said, do it for thirteen point five, or the project is dead. They scrambled to try and make cuts, but there just wasn't any more room to make cuts. They'd already done as much as they can, and they just didn't have any money left. Meanwhile, Chris Columbus had lunch with a buddy of his from Fox, along with another executive. I was going to say, could they find it somewhere else? Well, legally, you can't show a script to another studio. Like, another studio can't, you know, poach a project sure. when it's already under contract. So he's just having lunch. S- so can I uh, can I ask a movie industry question? Sure, I don't Kate? know if I have the answer. Uh, no, I. But you probably have more experience. But like, when uh, can you be an investor in a film that's produced by a studio? I think so. Okay, so th- could they find like an outside investor that maybe wasn't part of another studio? Mm, maybe, but that's not what. Happened. Okay, great. Just just putting that out there. Sorry. Kate has this really amazing Simply Modern cup she bought recently, and it's gorgeous. And I I'm really, love it. I like when you pick it up to take a drink because it's, it's enormous. It's enormous, <laughs> and it's nice to look at. I love it. I think it's just the right size. It's delicious. I need to buy a new one because mine fell in the gutter. And it got smashed. So the guys are sitting at lunch, and the guys from Fox ask Chris how it's going on Home Alone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I think Warner Brothers might pull the plug. We are asking for my money for more money than what they're willing to give. And he tells them about the situation. And the guys were like, wait, they're not willing to go up $1.2 million? And they said, if Warner Brothers kills the project, we've got you. <gasps> Fox, coming in with the backup plan. Coming in hot. Coming in hot. Hot potatoes. <laughs> it's Christmas. Oh, that is weird that you just said hot potatoes. We're going to get to it in a second. Uh, Kate pulls out some like baked potatoes and it's like <laughs> delicious. We're going to take a break. <laughs> Warner Brothers did kill the project. They oh, sent fuck. a rep to the production offices at New Cheer High School who went around to each section of offices telling them to stop working. The movie is dead. So producers from the film called up Fox and said, hey, Warner's pulled the plug to which Fox said, great. You're a Fox picture now. So as the rep from Warner Brothers would leave one section of offices telling them to pack up, a producer from Home Alone would go in after him and say, actually, no, it's cool. Like, just keep working. We just we're just with a different studio now. So it's kind of like scandalous a little bit. That is scandalous. I'm interested in the logistics of like the financials of production now. Sure. I mean, it's but kind we don't of have to job. talk about it because it's boring. <laughs> 
everything was coming into place, but they were concerned about weather because they had some outdoor shots they needed, particularly that money shot at the end where it's the perfect snowfall. But it was unseasonably warm in Chicago that year. Go fucking figure. However, the weather forecast was predicting a snowfall. And on the second day of shooting, they got what they needed. Well, that's nice because normally any weather that's forecasted, even like three hours before it's supposed to happen, will change. It will change, especially here. They scrapped their original plans for what they were supposed to shoot that day. And they said, we have to shoot this ending scene. Everybody to the house. To help with the look, the crew added potato flakes, as we were just talking about potatoes. Told you it was coming back. To make sure that the ground was completely covered, because the actual snow wasn't necessarily sticking like they needed it to. And the potato flakes worked great. They were the right color, gave the right texture, and the snow that fell on top of them was just like icing on the cake. Oh, okay. It was exactly what they needed. And then it melted, and that family was left with a front yard full of mashed potatoes. Exactly. It reeked. They just had rotting potato flakes. These Wait, are you being serious? Absolutely, oh, yes. No. <laughs> I was making a joke. No, that is exactly <laughs> what happened. So these potato flakes began to rot. Oh, no. Cause, yeah, because it's just dehydrated potatoes. Yeah, and they turned brown and yellow, and it smelled awful. Oh, no. So now they had to clean all of that up. The family or well, the No, not the production. family, the production. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine if they were like, uh, Mr. and Mrs. The Aberdeen? production crew let the family out of the <laughs> attic to come down to clean up the rotting mashed potatoes. They have the six-year-old girl. That's the child abuse I was she's talking about. <laughs> she's wearing a potato sack <laughs> as a dress. It's Les Mis. But it was a great effect while it lasted. For the cast, they were able to bring in a lot of Second City actors, one of which was Ken Hudson Campbell, who played Santa. The morning of his audition, he showed up at New Trier High School, and Chris Farley was there auditioning for the same role. But Farley had spent the previous night out partying and seemingly had not gone to bed because he was dropped off at his audition after this marathon night, like straight from the bars. can't do that. He did it, and he was in bad shape. He comes in, he's a mess. He's catcalling all the females in the production offices. It was bad. He walked into the audition room and pretty much immediately walked right back out. He totally bombed. But because he didn't get the part, that meant that Ken Hudson Campbell did. So he played Santa. Catherine O'Hara was another Second City alum, along with John Candy. And Candy did his role of Gus Polanski, Polka King of the Midwest, as a favor to John Hughes. It was one of the only days Hughes was on set because he was good friends with Candy and wanted to watch him. Oh, that was weird. I heard that. I heard what? I think the records. Touched. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. A, a piece of the Lisa Frank nail polish came off, like one of the confetti pieces, oh. and I didn't want to drop it so Frankie would eat it. So oh, I put it in my pocket. That's very kind of you. Put it in my pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Just a tiny piece of nail polish. Uh, <laughs> it's on my pocket. <laughs> Gross. I'm going crazy. <laughs> Uh, so Hughes was on set when John Candy was there, and Candy's schedule was jam-packed, so he literally only had one day to work. And Hughes gave him the freedom to improvise. He was the only actor that Hughes allowed to tinker with the script because he was very protective of his writing. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I get that. 
It helped that Candy had already worked with Catherine O'Hara in the past, so they knew how to play off each other really well. But because of Candy's limited schedule, his workday on the set was 23 hours straight. Because they had to make sure that they got everything they wanted before he left. Like, how do you even keep up that much energy to keep doing tapes? Oh, barely. But he was John Candy, and he was a fucking beast. Bro. So his stuff in the movie is mostly all improvised. The stuff about the polka band, the funeral home story. He's just making that shit up as he goes along, which is a testament to what a talented guy he was. And the fact that he did it as a favor is a testament to the kind of man he was because he made less money than the guy who played the pizza delivery boy. He only made like 400 something dollars because he was just doing it like he just got scale. He didn't get like his rate. He was just like, yeah, sure, I'll come in for a day. It's pretty amazing. Good for him. Sadly, just a few years after the movie's release, John Candy died of heart failure while working on a movie in Mexico. He had been a heavy smoker since he was a teenager, smoking a pack a day. He was also a heavy drinker, ate in excess, and unfortunately, he was a cocaine addict. Oh, no. That's like the... Yeah. He said it was when he got into Second City in Chicago that the drugs and heavy drinking really spiraled out of control for him Mm -hmm. because he was around performers like Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, and John Belushi, who he said were all heavy drug users. And that was just kind of the life. They'd be out at the bars until 5 a.m. They partied hard. But when John Belushi died of a drug overdose in 1982, Candy did quit for a little while, but still used cigarettes and food as a means to combat anxiety. He struggled a long time. He would try to diet and exercise, but then fall back into his bad habits. And heart disease ran in his family. His dad had died of a heart attack when Candy was just a little boy. Addiction is is a disease. It is. It's hard. It is. It's hard to overcome. So I don't, you know, look down on him because of that. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, he really did try. Yeah. It's just when when you're faced with such, like anxiety depression any mm-hmm. kind of like internal struggles like and when you have that much pressure that, on you yeah just to quiet that even for a few hours is just I get it mm-hmm. I get it and the more successful he became the more he drank and smoked right. and used drugs because the pressure just keeps yeah. going up and up man so that is something to note because during the time of home alone like he was he was working a lot he was yeah. in movie after movie after movie and that was kind of at the height of his cocaine addiction and his oh, and a lot of his trouble. I, yeah, so that's all happening behind the scenes with him. Right. John Candy appeared in more John Hughes movies than any other actor. Oh. A lot of people think it was Molly Ringwald, but it's John Candy. In order for the premise of Home Alone to work, the actors cast as the burglars had to be just right. They had to have chemistry. Robert De Niro was considered for the role of Harry, a part that eventually went to Joe Pesci. And although Daniel Stern was cast as Marv, he almost wasn't in the movie. When he was told they would need him for eight weeks instead of the agreed-upon six, he asked for more money, which is reasonable, which they said they didn't have. So he quit. The actor they cast in his place was Dan Roebuck. But after a few days working with Dan, it was clear the chemistry just wasn't there between him and Joe Pesci. And Pesci and Daniel Stern had actually worked together before and had a good rapport with each other. So the team went back to Daniel Stern, and he was so relieved. He was like, I can't believe I almost let this slip away. Joe Pesci wasn't exactly an angel to work with. Well, we've talked about Joe Pesci. We have, and we're going to talk about 
him again regarding that also like daniel stern in these movies to me is just hot he is kind of hot i was watching one of the home alones recently and i was like what is this feeling (laughs) so sudden and new (laughs) yeah he uh he's hot he's hot so joe pesci was critical of the script He didn't feel that some of the things he had to say were sophisticated Mm. enough for him. He also had a really hard time controlling his cursing on set around all the kids. (laughs) That would be me. I'd be like, (laughs) fuck. And then everyone would be like, oh, (laughs) money in the jar. I swear jar. I'm going to bust that shit open and buy some cigarettes. I just need to bust it open and pay my bills. I don't even smoke (laughs) anymore. And... Pesci wanted to work when it was convenient for him rather than the production. He liked to play golf before work. Shut up. And when he was given a 7 a.m. call time, he grabbed assistant director James Giovanetti by the collar, yelling at him, and dragged him into the executive producer's office demanding that his call time be changed. No. I think they agreed. No. I don't think we should give people this power. Why do people think they can act like that? Oh, just, it's a job. You're getting paid for it. Like, just wait until you hear about some of the power plays coming. Uh, Kate. Pesci also refused to talk to Macaulay, although that was mainly because he wanted him to be terrified of him on screen. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, and he felt that if they were hanging out on the set, it wouldn't really work, which I do get that. And although most of the stunts for Harry and Marv were done by stunt performers, there were some that the actors did themselves. One of which is when Joe Pesci enters the McAllister house and a blowtorch burns his hat. Mm -hmm. He suffered actual burns to his head from that. Which, I mean, yeah, a blowtorch is burning your head. (laughs) And towards the end of the movie, when the burglars catch up to Kevin and Harry threatens to bite his fingers off one by one, he actually did bite Macaulay's finger to the point it left a scar. Okay, that's messed up. He's like, he got into it. We can't just brush over that, Kate. We can't? Joe Pesci bit Macaulay Culkin's fingers, yeah. actually. A child. A child's okay. fingers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. We can't. This, where are the, I'm. Where I'm, are the people protecting this child? Right. They weren't there, right? Because it was the not. 90s. They were definitely not there. Although, to be fair, I will say, like, John Hughes, Chris Columbus, John Candy, like, they were they all took very good care of Macaulay. So I don't want to say seem like like in that instance. I don't even know if Macaulay mentioned it. You know what I'm oh, saying? Okay. Like this is something that came later. But Macaulay has nothing but positive things to say about the okay. John Hughes and Chris Columbus and them. So well, I don't want to put that on. No, no, no. I hear that. But I just think that's a bizarre and kind of grotesque thing to happen to It a is child. kind of wild. Like like I'm not just walking up to kids and biting their fingers. I don't know. I thought I saw you do it the other day. Shh, Kate. <laughs> I don't know if Home Alone would have been as successful as it was if it weren't for the film star Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, he's the he's the literal like gem of that movie. Oh, absolutely. And I saw a video recently on TikTok of Catherine O'Hara at her star Hollywood walk of well, stars. he just got his star this past. Oh, maybe Friday. that was him. Maybe it wasn't her because she was talking about him and mm-hmm. she was saying how like wonderful he was to work with and how it was almost like they had just like cast like a normal little boy 
for them to like come and act with or something. Yeah, she spoke at his. Yeah, ceremony. okay, so that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I misunder- I misinterpreted. Get I thought it, it was- together, Kate. I don't know who has stars. <laughs> I don't know who gets on the Walk of Fame. Is that what it's called? Uh huh. Good job. Thank you. I have to say that after doing the research for this, I really want to be friends with him. Like Macaulay he Culkin? just yes, he, he seems just pretty chill. He just seems like a good dude. He's come through so much shit and made it through to the other side and just seems like a good person. Although he is also very private, so we'll probably never be friends since I'm doing this episode. I have faith. I don't know what world exists where he and I would ever be in the same room together, so it's probably not going to happen, but hey. You never, never say know. never. Never say never. Originally, I was going to make this a Patreon episode because when we do something that's focused on a person who's still alive and active in their industry, I don't want to put anything out there that could be seen as an attempt to defame or embarrass or anything like that. That's never our intent. But he has spoken publicly about his childhood and his career. So it is out there. I listened to WTF with Mark Marin. He did an episode where he interviewed Macaulay or Mac as he prefers to be called And they discussed his childhood, his life, his career. So I feel like he himself has put the info out there. And I feel like this is an episode that I want to go to all of our listeners, especially for the time of year that we're in. I think it's a good one. And especially if it's information that's already public. It's not like you're airing anyone's dirty laundry. Exactly. I'll definitely link the Mark Maron episode. I'm not going to play a clip from it because it's his interview and you should all go check out his episode. Uh, Mac's interview starts about a third of the way into it. I might call him Macaulay. I might call him Mac. It's easier to say. Just bear with me. Yeah, Macaulay's a mouthful. Home Alone made Macaulay Culkin a household name. It is the film that truly sent his career into overdrive. But it was not Mac's first movie by any means. He had been working in the TV and film industry for years before landing that part. And he's a kid. Yeah, he was like nine. Since a baby? About since four. Damn. Yeah. But it was not necessarily by choice. Mm. His parents, and more specifically his father, were the ones pushing him into an entertainment career. I'm going to go deep into Macaulay Culkin's life and career, and and then we're going to talk about the other cast members. But I just I kind of did a deep dive on him, yeah, because I, I think it. there's a lot there. I and don't know. I don't, I don't. I know that there's hardship there. Mm-hmm. I didn't follow that those stories when they came out. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a lot to it. I'm just going to move this real quick before you start talking again. Move it wherever you need. I just didn't want you to be talking, and I moved the microphone. Okay, thank you. (laughs) I'm in a weird place. Welcome. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Macaulay Carson Culkin was born on August 26, 1980, in New York City. He was the third of seven children born to Christian Culkin and Patricia Brintrup. So let's talk about them. Uh Uh-oh. Macaulay's dad, Christian, or Kit as he is known, so I'm going to be calling him Kit throughout the rest of this, had his roots in theater. He is the older brother of actress Bonnie Bedelia. I didn't know that until I started researching this. Is that, is she related to Amelia? Bitch, I fucking loved Amelia Bedelia when I was little. Kate, we, I don't know how we haven't had this conversation, but I can't fucking stand <gasps> Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> and I think she's the dumbest bitch that's ever been a part of children's literature. How did you feel about Pippi Longstocking? No, no opinion. Neutral? Neutral. We have some things Amelia to discuss Bedelia? Somebody needed to sit her down and explain some things. Or she needed to go to like a special learning facility or something. Because the shit that she pulled, because she was so literal, like, she's 
maybe I need to revisit Amelia Bedelia. I, 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 it's I'm, been a I'm sorry, listeners. I legitimately hate her. We'll discuss it after. And if you don't know who Bonnie Bedelia is, she was not related to Amelia Bedelia because Amelia Bedelia is fictional. She was in- and ridiculous. <laughs> she was in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Lovers and Other Strangers, Die Hard, Parenthood, and a million other things. She's done Broadway. Her resume is nine miles long. So Bonnie Bedelia is Macaulay Culkin's aunt. That's that was amazing. wild. Bonnie and her older brother, Kit, both pursued a career in the arts and both attended the School of American Ballet in New York. Oh, shit. Ballas. Or ballerinas. <laughs> Sorry. Did you call them ballads? I did. Ballads. <laughs> ballads. That's the new term. I like it. But Kit just never could quite break through and see his career take off like his sisters had. He did do a lot of theater and acted alongside some big names. But like who? Like Laurence Olivier. Holy just shit. To, you know, there's one. But he was never a main character. He was usually relegated to the Sorry. chorus. Then he was cast in an off-off-off-off-off-Broadway production of King Lear, playing Gloucester, a character that is blinded in the play. And on opening night, Kit got so into his character that he was delivering a soliloquy, and he closed his eyes like he was so into it. He's feeling himself. But what he couldn't feel was how close he had wandered to the edge of the stage. Because in the middle of his speech, he fell off and into the first row of the audience. He was quite injured, and he couldn't do the rest of the run. But I also think part of the reason he quit the show was because he was embarrassed. He was humiliated. I mean, I live for a clip of something like that happening. (laughs) I just watched one on TikTok of uh, a production of of The Miracle Worker. Uh Uh-oh. And the girl playing Helen Keller oh, wandered no. too far forward and just oh, falls no. off the stage. Oh, no. Oh, and she pretended like nothing happened. Nice. Jumped right back up on and... Professional. Good job. Yeah, she was great. Have you ever fallen off stage, Kate? Off the stage? No. But I did pee in the middle of ballet class once. I fell backstage once, but everybody could see it because the production was in the style of Brecht. So it was all. It was all right there. You could see everything, Mm -hmm. and it was during it was Mother Courage and her children, and I played the old man, and I went to go to because my part was coming up, so I went to sit on the bench backstage, which everyone could see because it was pretty much Mm -hmm. lit, and the bench broke, (gasps) and I fell on the floor and rolled out onto the, and I just kind of laid there, and then I rolled back in. And then I got up and went on. There you go. That's all that you need. Shows professionalism. Yes. I was in ballet class and I was very young and I had on my little leotard and my tights and my little ballet shoes. Mm-hmm. And I realized, uh-oh, I'm going to pee in my pants. Oh, no. And I didn't want to interrupt class because the teacher was talking and I didn't want to interrupt her. And so we were all at the bar and we were doing plies and I plied. And I peed. <laughs> I feel like there's a word play you could do there, like plipede. It's plea called play. a plie, not a pie. <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. And another girl pointed and laughed at me and said, ha ha, she peed her pants. And my teacher was like, why didn't you ask to go to the bathroom? So everybody shamed you. Yeah, I was totally shamed, even by the teacher. You know, fuck that little bitch who said some shit. Yeah, what are you doing with your life What are you doing with your life? She's like on. She's like a rockhead. That was my dream in life. I'm going to cry. No, no, she died. (laughs) 
we don't have to take it there. My goodness. I just wanted to go to an immediate other <laughs> side of it. Uh, well, Kate, I just want to say that shit happens. And pee happens. And pee happens. And you should not have been shamed for peeing. Thank you. Because I understand where you were coming from. Thank you. Now back to Macaulay. Back, sorry. <laughs> that went off on a tangent. Kit didn't really have the professionalism that you had where he just got up and went back at <sighs> he it. He quit the show. He quit the show and he quit acting. He never acted again. Oh, oh, that's dramatic. Before meeting Patricia, Kit had a daughter named Jennifer from a previous relationship. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, she never met her half-siblings, Macaulay and the others. So I don't think Kit was in her life much, if at all. Mm. And sadly, she passed away in 2000 from a drug overdose at the age of 29. Oh, man, that's young. In 1974, Kit was driving cross-country when he came upon a road construction site. And the road traffic controller, the one who holds the sign telling cars to stop or slow, that traffic controller was none other than 17-year-old Patricia Brentrep. Oh, shit. Yeah, she was young. And she was working. And she was working on the streets. <laughs> not uh, <laughs> not like mean, that. Not like that. I just mean like that's ba- that's kind of badass. Yeah, it people, was badass. That job is not easy. No. Like you're standing out there for like like hours, hours. Mm-hmm. Like, and in that Holding weather, a fucking holding sign. Holding a sign and having to communicate and... Yeah. I respect those people. Don't run over them. Don't. According to Mac... This took place in North Dakota, which would make the most sense because that's where Patricia was from. But I've also seen it reported that they met in Wyoming and that she was 19. So I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there, but regardless. So rural Midwest in the Somewhere in middle America, a young woman is holding a sign. A young woman is holding a sign and a man that once fell off a stage is coming her way. Thank you. Yes. I, that's my, I want that to be my story. Kit pulled up in his pickup truck. He stops, as Patricia instructs him to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what kind of charisma Uniqueness this guy had, but he was like, you're hot. And she was like, you're hot. And she got into his truck and they drove away. Okay. Well, I take back everything I said. Patricia, P- what happened to Patty. the traffic after Patty. that? Okay, I would say, though, in that situation, like, hot, rugged dudes in pickups, if I was working that job and one was like, you're hot, get in, I'd be like, okay, bye, thanks, bye. I mean, it was the mid-70s. It was, right. like, hippie time. But I just imagine cars, like, colliding like, into each other as yeah. soon as they're driving <laughs> off in the distance. Patricia, that was that that was very it's bold bold it's very bold but also like inappropriate also also it's the 70s this is serial killer era yeah i can't even fathom that happening these days don't get into a stranger's car just because they seem charming unless you know you need to buy some weed no not even no (laughs) no do not get into a stranger's car if there's donuts involved kevin we need to have a talk the two of them headed to New York, where Kit was from. Like, Patricia literally left everything she knew behind in North Dakota to go start a life with this guy. Wow. Bizarre to me. That must have been some good dick. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> but probably. <laughs> They settled into a tiny apartment in the Spanish Harlem neighborhood, barely big enough for the couple and definitely not an adequate space for the seven children that would follow. Again. That's why I said maybe. (laughs) 
Kieran Culkin, Mac's little brother, mm-hmm. told Vanity Fair in 2018 that the apartment, quote, was effectively just a hallway. There were no separating doors except for the bathroom, which didn't have a lock. And Mac told Mark Marin it was four rooms. So they basically had one bedroom, a bathroom, a kitchen, and a living area that had a sofa. And that was it. That's it that for was seven it. kids. The, and they two did adults. have, by the time they had all seven, they yeah. did have two bunk beds. So five <sighs> of better. the kids shared two bunk beds, and then Macaulay and his brother slept on the couch. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. The first child was a boy, Shane, followed by a girl named Dakota, and then came Macaulay. The family was broke. Kit worked as a cab driver while Patricia was a telephone operator for a casting agency. But when the kids reached school age, Kit got a job at a local Catholic church so the kids could attend the parish school for free. Kit very much wanted his kids to be in show business like he had tried to be. His mom had been a manager for both him and his sister Bonnie. His dad was in public relations. I think he was attracted to the idea of fame and fortune and celebrity and all that. So when his oldest son Shane came along and was old enough to regurgitate lines that were fed to him... Kit began shuffling him around to auditions, and he'd bring the younger siblings with him just to tag along. Shane wasn't into acting so much. He tried it, but during a performance of Our Town at Lincoln Center, he projectile vomited all over the stage and thought, I don't think acting is my thing. How? Okay, I just want to ask in this family how we get to the points where you're on stage and like one falls off, somebody throws up. Not everybody's got it. Yeah. In big ways. Yeah. (laughs) When Mac was six years old, he accompanied his dad and older brother on one of Shane's auditions at the Manhattan Ensemble Studio Theater. But it was Little Macaulay who impressed casting director Billy Hopkins. Hopkins cast Mac in his first play, which was called After School Special. And it was while working with him that Billy realized just how poor the Culkin family was. They didn't even have a credit card. In 2001, Billy told New York Magazine that he paid his stage manager to get Macaulay to and from rehearsals because, one, I don't think the family had a car, but it's New York, so that's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think they could even afford bus fare, let alone money for a cab or Or anything like that. So Billy paid for those things and saw to it that the stage manager made sure Mac got to the theater and back home safely. That's nice. Billy even said, quote, Macaulay would crawl under the bleachers at the theater to look for change that had fallen out of people's pockets. They were like the Beverly Hillbillies. At this point in time, the Culkins had, I believe, five or six kids total. Once they started having kids, they pretty much had one every two years. So that's a lot of mouths to feed. And Kit was determined to make sure they contributed to the family's finances. Mac was a cute kid. He had a lot of charisma and he was fearless and critics loved him. So this theater gig led to the next and to the next. He was booking pretty much everything he went out for. Then when he was around seven or eight years old, he got accepted into the School of American Ballet, which both his dad and aunt had attended. And he was a professional dancer for a couple of years. He performed in the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center And he said he was one of three boys among 40 girls, so the ratio was working in his favor. He quickly began booking work in TV and film. Like, he didn't really struggle the way that the majority of actors who are starting out do. He was just this cute little blonde kid who was up for anything. He took direction well, and he did good work. And he liked to make adults laugh. 
Then John Hughes was looking for a kid to be in his film Uncle Buck, starring John Candy. Billy Hopkins happened to be the casting director for that movie and was like, I know a great kid. He's done a bunch of theater stuff for me. John Hughes was so impressed with Mac's work on that film that he wrote the role of Home Alone's Kevin McAllister specifically for him, as I mentioned before. However, Chris Columbus, Home Alone's director, felt he couldn't just give this kid the role, so he auditioned around 200 kids for the part. Of course, Mac got it. I mean, it was written for him, so that he was that character. Home Alone becomes a box office hit, and suddenly Macaulay Culkin is the most famous kid in America. For his role as Kevin McAllister, he won an American Comedy Award for Funniest oh, Leading Actor in a Motion Picture. I didn't know that. He was the winner of the Most Promising Actor by the Chicago Film Critics Association, and Dope. he was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance. Oh, shit. I mm-hmm. didn't know that either. Yeah. Good for him. Needless to say, Mac was now extremely in demand. Yes. And if you wanted Mac, you had to go through Kit, because Kit managed everything oh, dear. about his son's okay. career. Okay. Kit was the one who traveled with Mac when he had to go on location for a film, and Kieran Culkin and their younger brother, Rory, would tag along sometimes as well. Kieran worked consistently from a young age, just like Mac. I was going to say, isn't like Kieran, Rory, and Macaulay like the three Culkins that yes. had film careers? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. A year after Home Alone's release, Mac became the second youngest person to ever host Saturday Night Live. I didn't know that either. Yeah, he was just 11 years old. Drew Barrymore was the first. She hosted when she was freaking seven. After E.T., right? Yeah. And Kit firmly believed that professional actors should have their lines memorized, so he would not allow his son to host SNL with cue cards. Everyone on SNL uses cue cards. cards. There's someone holding up a big old poster with their lines off camera, but Kit forbade it. In fact, he wouldn't allow anyone on the show to use cue cards because if you're in a scene and one person has their lines written out and they're that they're reading and then the other one doesn't like it doesn't really make sense and kit hated it when people glanced over to get their line so no one could use cue cards for that episode and the thing is people gave in to kit's demands i was gonna say like why yeah that's bananas i mean that's just a testament to the popularity of of uh, macaulay Macaulay Culkin Culkin exactly and it wasn't just on snl but on all other projects because mac was an international superstar producers wanted him on their projects he was in high demand because if you had macaulay culkin on your film exactly like you're gonna make more money at the box office but here's the thing he never chose any of it It's not like he woke up one day at the age of four and said, I'd like to start going on nine auditions a day. It was all kids doing. It was his dream, and he quite literally forced his kids into it. Mac didn't read any scripts when he was a kid. He didn't read Home Alone. He didn't read it and go, oh, this is an interesting project. I'd like to work on it. No, instead, his dad was like, you're going to do this movie. That's that. It's not to say he didn't enjoy it, some of it at least, but he never had a choice in the matter. And the same went for his siblings. If Mac got a movie, Kit would push for his other kids to get roles in it as well. 
Kieran Culkin, perfect example. He plays the cousin of Mac's character in Home Alone. That's right. In an article in The Guardian, Mac recalled one day when he was walking down the road, chatting with his mom, and he was excited because it was almost the end of the school year and summer was coming up. And he's telling her about all the things he wants to do, you know, because he's a kid. And she gets this look on her face and she hesitates for a second. And she says, well, don't make any plans because you might be working. And then he found out later that his parents had already signed a contract for him on a job. So when I say he didn't have a choice, like it really was not up to him. After Home Alone, Mac got the part of Thomas J. Sinnott in My Girl, where he played a kid allergic to basically everything. Allergic to bees. Allergic to bees. I bawled my eyes out during that movie. He and his co-star, Anna Chlumsky, won an MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss. Which no, 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 feels no, 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 that's gross. Really weird to give to children. That shouldn't have happened. No, but it was the '90s, right? Yeah. For whatever reason, Kit banned Mac from promoting the film. He didn't seem to think it was very good, I guess. But that film made him the first child actor to earn a million dollars for a role, because that's the amount Kit demanded. It seemed the more successful Mac was, the more demanding Kit became. And not just with producers, but with Mac himself. Mm-hmm. According to Mac, his dad was never a good man. He said his dad didn't really like him. Oh, man, that's tough. In fact, Kit resented him. Yeah. Because as Mac told Mark Marin on the WTF podcast, quote, everything he tried to do in his life, I excelled at before I was 10 years old. Even after the success of Home Alone, the family was still living in that tiny apartment. The kids didn't even have their own bedroom. Max slept on the couch with one of his brothers, and he said his dad wanted them to know that Kit was in charge. And if Kit didn't want them to have a bed, they weren't going to have a bed. (sighs) Egomaniac. Aside from being mentally abusive, Kit was also physically abusive. No. Max said he has scars from his dad. Kit didn't like him, and he didn't like Kit. But Kit was the one managing him and traveling with him for work. So when Mac would be on location, like in Chicago for Home Alone, Mm -hmm. the two of them would stay in hotel rooms together, basically just hating each other. That sucks. Yeah. And I like I can't even imagine because they're having to spend so much time together. Mm -hmm. And there's no it doesn't seem like there's any kind of love there. No. And it doesn't seem like Mac had an outlet. What? What a horrible Awful feeling. Yeah. And Mac really missed his siblings when he was away. He missed his family. But taking a break was not an option. Kit was like, you're doing this or else. Mm. After the success of Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin became the most in-demand kid in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And in 1993, his dad, Kit, was rated one of Hollywood's most powerful people by Premier Magazine, a title that he milked for all it was worth. I was just going to say, I bet he loved that. Oh, yeah. When it came to professional matters, Kit threw around his weight to get whatever outrageous demand he came up with, resorting to harassment and even blackmail. Fox was developing a movie called The Good Son, and they sent the script to Kit to see if Mac was interested. But according to studio executives, Kit never bothered to read it, because he apparently hated reading. He didn't give the film much thought. So the studio assumed the Culkins weren't interested, and they moved on. They cast Jesse Bradford in the lead role. And I know Jesse Bradford has been in a lot of things, but to me, he will always be Cliff from Bring It On. Sigh. 
about a year later, when The Good Son was two weeks away from heading into production, Kit decided, huh, the role in The Good Son would be a great departure for Mac and Hollywood will see him as a serious actor. Did you ever see The Good Son? I don't think I did. I did. I think I saw it in theaters. It's creepy. The lead role of Henry is this sinister, violent kid. It's oh. creepy. Oh, no, I did see that With one. Elijah Wood. Yeah, 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 because yeah. it's the two kids, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And at the end, like, at, there's the scene with the cliff near the end. Yes. <gasps> that movie is insane. It is. It's really good, though. Mm-hmm. So, Kit calls up Fox and threatens to pull Mac from Home Alone 2 unless Fox cast him in the starring role of The Good Son. Not only that, he demanded that Mac's younger sister Quinn and younger brother Rory play his siblings in the film. Kit knew Home Alone 2 wouldn't happen without Mac. Michael Lehman, who was set to direct The Good Son, had met with the Culkins, but he didn't think Mac was right for the role, and he told the studio that. But Fox didn't want to put the Home Alone franchise in jeopardy, so they gave in to Kit's demands. And Michael Lehman was like, fuck it, I'm out, and left. Wow. And the thing is, the production schedule for Home Alone 2 was in direct conflict with the schedule for The Good Son. So The Good Son had to postpone for a year. So you've got all the time and work that went into the pre-production out the window. Cast members becoming unavailable due to the schedule change. Mary Steenburgen was originally in it, but had to drop out. You've got crew members that have turned down other work because they thought they were going to be on this shoot at this time. Suddenly they're out of a job. And one of the higher-ups from the production team who wanted to remain anonymous said, quote, It was a destructive thing for Kit to do. I don't know if he did it deliberately. I explained that he was putting 60 people out of work and causing the studio to throw away millions of dollars and asking me and other creative people to literally throw away six months of our working life. He shrugged. What a selfish cunt. In addition to the original director, the film's original writer and producer also left the production because of Kit. Kit's reputation preceded him because everyone talks in Hollywood. So if you wanted Macaulay Culkin, the most bankable child star since Shirley Temple, you had to go along with Kit's demands. And some of these demands included um, rewriting scenes, insisting parts of a film be cut if he didn't like it, Having the hair and makeup team redo Mac's look if Kit didn't like the way his hair was done. Changing the sound effects in a film. This is just the beginning. Things came to a head when Mac was in the film version of The Nutcracker playing The Nutcracker Prince. Oh, I remember that too. Kit was pulling his usual shenanigans, threatening to pull his son from any promotional material until his ludicrous demands were met. And when he insisted that Kevin Klein's narration be pulled from the film, producer Arnon... Nilshan, probably butchering that, had had enough, stating in an interview, quote, I can take so much harassment, so much extortion, so much blackmail. Enough. In an article in the New York Times from November 1st, 1993, one paragraph reads, One of the biggest producers in town who has worked with the Culkins and insisted that his name not be used for fear of never working with them again, said this morning, People are waiting really waiting for a hiccup in the kid's career. That's what's so sad, because at the center of all the drama is a little boy. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, producers and directors loved working with him. Mm -hmm. He was a talented kid. He was professional. He was charismatic. None of the demands were coming from him. It was all from his dad. And now here's Hollywood 
quietly rooting for this kid's downfall just so that they don't have to deal with his dad anymore. That's a bad situation. Mm -hmm. As a kid, Mac did not have any friends. He was always working. And when he wasn't, it's not like he could just walk down the street and go to the mall because everyone recognized him. Not long after the release of Home Alone, Mac and his brother Kieran were outside and some rando walks up to them, rips the hat Mac is wearing off of his head. Just like takes this child's hat off. And she looks at her friends and says, yeah, it's him. Then she looks back at him and to his face says, you're not that cute. Oh, my God. Like, what the fuck, lady? It's a child. People are garbage. I agree. Most people. Yeah. Everybody is like, everybody has some good inside of them. Some people, actually, I'm going to say um, a bigger percentage of people probably don't. Mm. It's just, why, why do that? What do you get from that? I think people just... They didn't see him as a human. They I know, saw him it's as like, like that this thing object. Is like an object that you know, you that is there for their entertainment. Their entertainment, and they can do do whatever they want to that person. Yeah, it's fucked up. Mac resorted to holing himself up in his bedroom once he finally got one, yeah. and spent what little free time he had watching TV. But even that got weird when he noticed people staring through the window trying to get a glimpse of oh him. Oh my god! No one was protecting this kid. Enter Michael Jackson. Michael and Mac met before Home Alone, actually, when Mac was performing on stage in the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center. Then when Home Alone came out, Michael called up the Culkins, having come from a similar situation, a controlling father, constantly working from a young age. Michael wanted to make sure Mac had a safe space to go to. And that is what it was. Mac has vehemently denied Anything untoward occurred between the two. Mac says Michael was never inappropriate with him. And personally, I believe him. I have no reason not to. And Mac talks a little bit more about it on the WTF podcast. You should all go listen to that. Again, I'll link it. It's really fascinating. After The Good Son, Mac's next few films, including Richie Rich, bombed at the box office. Kid had made a number of enemies, and now he was seen as box office poison. And then one day, Kit just disappeared for like three weeks. Didn't tell anyone where he was going. Not even Patricia. Just left her there with all the kids. And a babysitter for the family commented during this time that it was weird that not a single one of the kids asked about their dad. Or brought him up at all. Because they all fucking hated him. Yeah, they did. It was around this time that Patricia, like the Hollywood executives had had enough Mm -hmm. because she too had been a victim of Kit's abuse. And unfortunately for her, it was much more violent. Oh man, Patricia. In 1994, she kicked Kit out of their home and a bitter custody battle ensued, during which the kids found out for the first time that their parents weren't actually married. They just hadn't found a need to get married. Right. But it's just kind of weird that none of their kids knew that. Not even the oldest ones. Where was Kit, though, during those three weeks? Do we ever know? We don't know. We don't know. But he did eventually just show back up. He comes back. Right. He's not wanted, but he comes back. During the custody battle, Patricia accused Kit of excessive drunkenness, being unfaithful, and, quote, a violent reign of terror in which he punched her during two of her pregnancies, as well as at other times stating, quote, he punched me in the head and about the body 
causing me substantial injury and dragged me out to the balcony, threatening to push me over the railing. Several of the children witnessed this incident. I suffered two black eyes and substantial bruising. Kit denied everything, and his lawyer said Patricia was just, quote, a very angry lady, which, if my partner beat me up repeatedly and cheated on me and threatened to kill me, I think I'd be pretty angry, too. And you're so tied to this person because you have so many children. Yeah. And they are both managing their children's careers. Oh, so Patricia was managing them as well? Yes. So they are splitting 15% of everything their kids make. At 14 years old, Mac realized this was an ideal time to cut kid off. And even though he sided with his mom in the custody battle, he chose to remove both parents' names from his trust fund, and he got an executor instead, which I think was the smartest decision he could have made, and also just shows an incredible amount of maturity. A lot of the arguing between Patricia and Kit was about money and who was going to get control of their children's careers and control of that money. Because like I said, they made 15% of every dime the kids made and Mac made millions. And so the the 85% that went to the kids, would that just go into his trust fund? Into his trust fund, yep. He wanted a clean break. And he also didn't want to do this thing that his parents, particularly his father, had pushed him into doing. He was aware that he had enough money to be set for life. And he said, quote, I understand my parents put me in the financial position I am in today, and I am grateful for that. But he was just done being the little worker bee for his parents. Well, and also, like, I don't know that he owes them any kind of thanks for, you know, that's not to say that there wasn't hard, extremely hard work behind all of the money he made. That was because of his talent. Sure. And he's not saying, thank you, mom and dad, for giving me this career. He's saying, I understand that they Put me in this position. Oh, I see. Sorry. He is grateful of what came from that, the money that came from mm. that, because it did afford him a life that he a can enjoy. Life. Yeah. After all was said and done, Kit and Mac were estranged. He later wrote a semi-autobiographical book called Junior, and in it he writes letters to his father. Ooh. Here's just one of them. It reads, Dear Father, it didn't have to be like this. We could have stayed poor. You showed me what it was like to be afraid. You hurt people a lot, you know. I'm not just talking about your family and the other important people around you. You hurt our name. I should know. Did you know I had to apologize on your behalf way too many times? You made a lot of people cry. You made my mother cry. I don't think Kit is in any of the kids' lives now. When a reporter tracked him down in 2018 and asked if he'd heard from Mac, he said, quote, I don't consider him a son anymore. He's a super great dude. What a nice person. Yeah. On taking a break from acting, Max said, quote, I've done 14 films and never looked at one script. I was just a machine. My father would go over what I was doing next day. I'd go on the set, do it, come home, go over what we were going to do the next morning. I really had no sense of the actual film. After a while, I didn't care anymore. I had been wanting to stop since I was about 11. At that time, I think it was looked at like, oh, he's aged out of his cuteness or he's just another child star who's, you know, no longer bankable. But in reality, he made the decision himself. He just didn't want to do it anymore. He left, he went to school, and he met fellow actress Rachel Miner. The two got married when they were both teenagers, which if you've been working since before you could read, 
and you are a multimillionaire before you can legally drive and you've never really had a stable, like, quote unquote, normal home life, it honestly doesn't feel like a huge jump for me to enter into a marriage and try to create that for yourself. Because like, at that point, what is the next life milestone? You have your career, you know, you have all these things. So I don't actually think that's all that weird. But the marriage was short lived. He did experiment with recreational drugs, and he owns up to that, but says it was never like the tabloids tried to make it seem. He was not on the verge of death. He was not spending $6,000 a month on heroin. Oh, okay. See, this is the stuff that I remember coming out and seeing those tabloids. Yeah, that was all very exaggerated. It was exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, no shit. Now, I mean, yep. tabloids in the late exactly 90s, early aughts. Tabloids loved tearing down Macaulay Culkin because in our society, we just love to build someone up and- And rip it right off like a Band-Aid. Exactly. So when tragedy struck the day before Christmas Eve 1998, Mac was somehow blamed even though he wasn't even there. It began in the apartment Patricia lived in with the younger Culkin children. Not the tiny cramped apartment that they started out in. This was a place they got once Mac had made a bunch of money. They were living on the 19th floor of a high-rise, and it was actually two units that had been combined, so it was a massive place. Each apartment had a heating unit mounted on the wall, and somehow one of the ones in the Culkin residence started a fire. Law enforcement initially believed the unit had shorted out. I read in another source that paper had been placed too close to the unit and caught fire. Not sure exactly what the official cause was. There is a New York Times article that details what went down, and it is harrowing. One witness who was in an adjacent building said that around 9.45 a.m., there was a loud pop, and he saw a window, which turned out to be from the Culkin's apartment, blast open. Wow. He said he could see a Christmas tree on fire inside. The fire spread quickly. As soon as the blaze began, Patricia and the children ran out of the apartment to safety, but as they did, they left their apartment door open. A fatal mistake. The four-alarm fire brought close to 200 firefighters to the scene. Wind coming from the busted-out window zipped through the apartment and out the door into the hallway Mm. and up the stairwell. Residents from the floors above clamored to get out, only to be met with a blast of heat and smoke. When firefighters reached the 19th floor and opened the door from the stairwell, they couldn't see anything. It was pitch black from the smoke. But then suddenly, a wall of flames came at them. One of the firefighters, Captain Jack Klehas, said, quote, First it's black, then it's hot, then it's orange. You're burned before you see it coming. Oh, yikes. The first three firefighters were burned before they even got through the door. Klehas described the heat as being so ferocious it was like a pizza oven, even burning the cover of the fire hose. I read the temperature was around 2,000 degrees. The building was not required to have sprinklers in the hallways or in the residential units. In the end, 24 people were injured, including nine firefighters, and tragically, Four residents died from smoke inhalation as they tried to escape from the upper floors down the stairwell. The media dubbed it the Culkin Fire. No. And Macaulay's name was tossed around a lot when it was reported on. But he did not live in that apartment and wasn't even there when the fire occurred. Yet, he was sued 
along with his parents and the building managers by an insurance company that was seeking restitution for claims they had paid out to their clients who had been living in the building at the time. That suit was eventually dropped, but Patricia, along with the building owners, were slapped with an $80 million lawsuit by the families of those that died in the fire. It's a tragic situation all around. I could see how in the chaos of everything and trying to get her kids out, she didn't think to close the apartment door. I uh, Can I just stop and say, yep. like, I wouldn't either. Absolutely not. Exactly. I would just run for my life and get out. Yeah. It's not on her. Like, something went wrong with the heater, right? Mm-hmm. And it caused a fire, and she ran out with her kids. It's the building's fault for not having the proper safety procedures or whatever yep. in place to deal with that and it's I'm not, not her fault i'm not sure i would even know that i should close the I, door why would i close it i don't know i would my first instinct i don't know obviously i haven't been in this situation except for those little trailers that they would bring to elementary school right to yeah like, i remember those <laughs> to escape a fire uh but like i would just run out and just get the fuck out of there with my kids yeah like no no fault to her absolutely none yeah it's really tragic because i think that they really put that whole family through the shit for a long time. Um, well, and I think they probably felt that they could because, like, this is a family of a really famous that actor money. that probably has money. So yeah. it's so interesting to me, like, how when people die or there's an accident, like, our minds, because of the society that we live in, think immediately we have to have some kind of monetary, co- like, compensation. Mm. it's like it ascribes money to like the value of, of people's life. lives yeah. and I just think that you know I understand I understand thinking that you deserve something and in some cases I think that's probably true but I just think we need to kind of think above that I don't yeah. know I'm sorry I, I don't mean to go on a tangent I just don't apologize it's like whenever like with with especially American society when we're all mm-hmm. about just suing each other mm-hmm. for when we believe we think we deserve something yep I don't know. I do. I just don't know. I do think it is something that is so unique to American society, right? And it's not regulated in a way that is helpful. And it just it just costs people money. That's mm-hmm. all it does. And I'm not saying that there are instances where people don't deserve money. I think sure, there absolutely sure. are. I just think you know if you're going to do that, you need to be targeting the right person for the right reasons mm-hmm. sorry no Feel stop apologizing no uh in 2004 mac w- we're moving away from the fire okay in 2004 mac was riding in a car uh that his friend brett to probably said that wrong was driving the two were traveling cross country from new york to la and on september 17th they were pulled over in oklahoma by a police officer because brett was speeding Brett consented to a search of the car, and the officer had the two men get out of the vehicle. They admitted to having drugs in the vehicle, and Mac had some in his pocket. They were very cooperative with the officer. They showed him everything they had, which was some Xanax, sleeping pills, along with a few joints. It wasn't anything crazy. Yeah. That sounds like a good Friday, Saturday night, (laughs) in my opinion. But because Mac didn't have a prescription for the pills he had in his pockets and because of the weed, he was arrested on two drug charges. Brett was also booked and they both posted bail. Again, the media went crazy for this, labeling Macaulay Culkin this drug addict. His mugshot was everywhere. But like 
it just wasn't as big a deal as it was made out to be. Yeah. He received a one-year suspended sentence for each charge and had to pay a fine. And there you go. Mm. He did get back into acting. He did some theater, some guest spots here and there, some independent films, one of which was Party Monster, which is based on a true story. That's like a cult classic movie. Max's older sister, Dakota, or Cody, as they all called her, didn't see the film until a few years later in 2008 when she watched it one night with her roommate. She had just moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in film production. She didn't have any acting aspirations, but she did want to be behind the camera, and she had previously worked in the art department on a film, so this was something she really wanted to pursue. Nice. Mac and Cody were really close. She was kind of known as the funniest one in the family. They all said she was really witty. Her friends and even her co-workers said the same thing. She was just really funny. On this night in 2008, after she watched Party Monster, she called Mac to congratulate him on his performance. And they talked a little bit. And he says that afterwards, she apparently had run out to go get some Gatorade and cigarettes. But news reports tell a different story. They say that that night, she was drinking at an Irish pub in Marina Del Rey. And when she left, she was likely intoxicated. Whether she was going to go get cigarettes or she was leaving a bar or leaving a bar to go get cigarettes... She was hit by a car as she stepped off the curb. She was taken to UCLA Hospital with severe head trauma, but died shortly after. Fuck. The Culkins were devastated. They each took it very hard, and it was years before they were able to speak about her death. Although he's very private, Mac does seem to have a good sense of humor about himself. He's earned the ability to do the type of work he wants to do when he wants to do it. Good. He's parodied himself in commercials. He started a rock band called the Pizza Underground. It was a <sighs> Velvet Underground parody band <laughs> where he played the kazoo and sang. Uh, and they'd give out boxed pizzas to the audience. Why didn't I know about this back then? I would love a boxed pizza me too. And to listen to some music. And in 2017, he created Bunny Ears, which is a comedy brand. It's a satirical website and podcast. I'll link it. In 2018, he legally changed his middle name. He held a vote on his website, and the majority of people voted that his middle name should be Macaulay Culkin. So his full legal name is Macaulay Macaulay Culkin Culkin. (laughs) And I love it. You're shaking your head no. I just love that he has a sense of humor about himself. Oh, absolutely. That's nice, but I don't know. (laughs) You're not into it? No. In 2021, critics praised him for his role in American Horror Story. Oh, shit. I forgot he was in AHS. Mm -hmm. And like we were saying earlier, this past Friday, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was accompanied by his partner, actress Brenda Song, and they're two cute little babies. Their oldest son is two. He's named Dakota after Mac's sister. And their youngest son is Carson, which was Mac's original middle name. And they just seem like the sweetest, loveliest family. Catherine O'Hara was also there. We were mentioning and she spoke. It just seemed very cool. So I'd say he's quite the success story. Not sure I can say that about some of the other cast members. Oh, God damn. So I just mentioned Catherine, who, of course, played his mom in Home Alone. There's no scandal with her. She's a queen and say, always will be. I was going to say, what the fuck are you about to, t- to bring up about her? Kid? No, no, no. she's no. amazing. Yeah, she, I stand Catherine O'Hara. But let's talk about the man that played his dad, John Hurd. Oh. 
Years ago when I was living in LA, a friend of mine was in a staged reading that I went to see and John Hurd was also in the cast. And I just remember being so enamored because I was like, oh my God, it's the dad from Home Alone. I can't believe he's right there in front of me. Well, if I'd known then what I know now, I doubt I would have been as excited to see him. He wasn't exactly partner or father of the year. His first marriage in 1979 to actress Margot Kidder ended after just six days, although I think a lot of that had to do with their conflicting work schedules and Margot's own mental health struggles. It was Heard's next high-profile relationship that was so explosive. He began dating actress Melissa Leo in 1986, and the following year they welcomed a son, John Matthew Heard, who they called Jack. From what I can tell, before Jack was even born, Melissa and John were already having troubles because she was already thinking to herself that she was going to have to raise this boy as a single parent. Melissa and John broke up in 1988 when Jack was just a baby. Mm -hmm. And that very same year, John married his second wife, Sharon. And this was when John's career was in its heyday. He was in the movie Big with Tom Hanks, Beaches with Bette Miller, and oh, then, beaches. of course, Home Alone in 1990, as well as Home Alone 2. But a year after Home Alone came out, Heard was arrested and charged with third-degree assault for slapping his ex-girlfriend, Melissa Leo. Their son, Jack, was just four years old at the time, and it seemed all the troubles between the former couple stemmed from John's frustration over the limited amount of time that he had to spend with his son. After his 1991 arrest, Melissa Leo obtained full custody, and John could only visit with him every other weekend. In 1994, Heard went to court to try and get custody of Jack, but was denied, with a judge saying he, quote, lacked temperament in parenting skills. And because of his history of physically abusing Melissa Leo, which had occurred in front of their son. Meanwhile, with his wife Sharon, he had two more kids, Annika and Max. According to Sharon, John was an absent father. I'm sure his work schedule kept him away from his family a lot. Mm -hmm. But I just thought this was interesting because he seems to go to extremes to see his firstborn, Jack, which I'll go more into in a second. But when it comes to his other two children, it just doesn't seem like he was as aggressive in attempting to be in their lives, if at all. In 1996... Heard was arrested once again on charges of assault, harassment, trespassing, and invasion of privacy and telephone misuse. Melissa said John tormented and terrorized her. He would call her house constantly wanting to speak to Jack, but she was scared to let him talk to him because she felt that John was going to try to turn Jack against her. Things escalated when she allowed John to take Jack to California on a two-week vacation. When they returned, John was calling Melissa's house five or six times a day, just nonstop. He'd leave messages calling her names and accusing her of keeping their son away from him. And in one of the calls, he admitted to terrorizing her and apologized for it. And when he wasn't calling, he was seen prowling around her neighborhood in Baltimore, even spying on them through the windows of her home. He'd even sit outside their son's school with binoculars to watch him. On one occasion, Melissa's boyfriend at the time, John Russell, got into a confrontation with Heard at Jack's school and alleged that Heard attacked him, striking him in the chest and neck. Melissa told police she feared for her safety and the safety of her son. 
Heard pleaded not guilty to all the charges, and he was acquitted of the more serious charges, the assault and the stalking charge at Jack's school. But he was found guilty of trespassing at Melissa's home and harassment with the excessive phone calls. He was facing a maximum of six years and two months behind bars. But District Court Judge Barbara Waxman instead sentenced him to 18 months of supervised probation and ordered him to attend a 22-week program for abusive men. She also ordered that he adhere to the visitation agreement that was put forth in the original custody hearing and that he continue with his psychiatric treatment, which he was already receiving. John and Sharon divorced in 1996, the same year he was arrested on all those charges. He did remarry several years later, but that marriage lasted only seven months because she fell in love with someone else. On December 6, 2016, John's son Max, from his second marriage, died of a drug overdose at the age of 22. And in Max's obituary, which his mom wrote, she insinuates that John Heard was the cause of her son's struggles, stating, quote, Max was in deep grief of not having a father participating in his life. We did everything to help him, but the agony was with him. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. That seems to me, as somebody whose mother poisoned them against their father growing up, like, I'm not saying that John shouldn't take any accountability in that situation. Cause but to put that in an obituary. But to put that in an obituary, that seems like a dig to try to get at somebody, especially 100%. when your child just passed away. I yeah. think that's a little too self- Misguided. Uh, it's it's gross. Yeah. Lana Pritchard, which was John's third wife, said he struggled to come to terms with Max's death. She and John had remained friends after their divorce and spoke often. Seven months after his death, John went in for surgery on his back at the Stanford University Medical Center in California. He'd been having a lot of pain, which was preventing him from being as active as he would have liked. Lana talked to him before the surgery and said he was in good spirits. He also had a lot of projects in the works and I think was just looking forward to being pain-free so he could get back to acting. After the surgery, he stayed in a hotel near the hospital to recover but just two days later, was found dead in his room by housekeeping. Mm. The coroner ruled his death a heart attack caused by heart disease and said the surgery did not contribute to his death. However, his toxicology report did show several narcotics in his system, including tramadol, oxycodone, oxymorphone, Xanax, buprenorphine, fentanyl, and hydromorphone. Holy fuck. Isn't that like some of the stuff that they put in to knock you out for surgery? It's a lot. That's um, a lot of stuff in your system. I will say some of those are used to alleviate pain, though there was no information in the toxicology report whether the drugs contributed to his death. But that's a lot of drugs in there, including opioids. His ex-wife, Lana, believes he might have accidentally overdosed, overdosed. trying to alleviate some of the pain from the surgery. She said he was a kind man and was heartbroken when he died. And a few years before his death, Melissa Leo said that she and John had actually smoothed things over and were on friendly terms. So it sounds like maybe later in his life, he maybe mellowed out a little bit and tried to realize that maybe, he wasn't treating people the best. Maybe. Because I didn't hear any incidents of things happening Yeah, later, towards mm, the end. Right. But one Home Alone cast member who's probably not smoothing things over with his ex anytime soon 
is Devin. He says it's pronounced Rattray. I'm going to say it's Rattray. It's R-A-T-R-A-Y. He played Kevin McAllister's older brother, Buzz, in the movie. In December of 2021, Devin and his then-girlfriend were in Oklahoma City attending the Oklahoma Pop Christmas Con, where Devin had been invited to appear as a celebrity guest. According to the affidavit, on December 8th at around 7 p.m., Devin and his girlfriend went to Mickey Mantle's Steakhouse, Mm. where he drank an entire bottle of wine and several shots of alcohol. Well, I mean, some (laughs) of us can handle things better than others, it sounds like. He was a big guy. I will give I will say that. Uh, His girlfriend had two cocktails. She reported that she believed Devin was intoxicated at that point, which consuming an entire bottle of wine and several shots of alcohol can certainly have that effect. I'm just saying, like, as someone who, you know what, never mind. It's good. We're fine here. We like alcohol. I will like, I know where you're going. His girlfriend at that point felt he was already intoxicated. Yeah, of course. That's the only point. No, 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 no. I mean, after a bottle of wine and a few shots, you're going to be drunk. They left the steakhouse around 11 p.m. and walked to the Coyote Ugly Saloon. Oh, shit. (gasps) Can't fight the moonlight deep (laughs) in the dark. <laughs> and they jumped up on the bar and they just started dancing. And then they became coyotes. Yeah. That's not what happened. <sighs> Devin's girlfriend didn't have anything to drink at that location, but said he consumed an additional 10 shots of alcohol. Can I just say something that's going to be interesting to this podcast? Real quick. Yeah. Um, so I hope the, that all the things the mo- you say are interesting. No, no, no. In, in the podcast. movie Coyote Ugly with Piper Perabo, her, the love interest, the Australian guy, um, I saw him in 2017 in a play production of The Exorcist on the West End playing oh. uh, Father Damien. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's all connected. It's all connected. I just needed to share that. Thank you. While they were at the saloon, two women walked up to the couple asking for Devin's autograph, and his girlfriend obliged. She kept signed autograph cards in her purse for this very occasion, and she handed each one of them a card. Devin got pissed at her. Why? Because she hadn't charged the women for the cards. Shut up. And they got into an argument. Dude, you had a supporting role in a film that came out 30 years prior. Take a seat. Sit down. I would have rather the women came up and asked for water and then he turned around and is like, do we serve water in this bar? Hell no. (laughs) H2O. And then sprayed them in the face. Amazing. I love, Kate, I love Coyote Ugly. You have no fucking idea. I'm getting a sense. (laughs) I love that movie. Leanne Rhymes. (laughs) So Devin's girlfriend was like, I don't need this. So she left and headed back to the hotel where they were staying. Shortly after, Devin went back to the hotel too. And when he got to the room, the arguing continued. He pushed her onto the bed, put one of his hands on her throat Mm. and the other over her mouth and began strangling her. No! According to the police report, as he was choking her, he shouted in her face, this is how you die. Oh my God. She bit his hand, at which point he stopped choking her and punched her in the face. No! She managed to get off the bed and run out of the room, Mm -hmm. but ran back in so she could grab her belongings. I'm guessing her purse. Yeah, she'll need that. When she did, Devin allegedly pushed her, which made her fall against the desk in the room and hit her arm. And then she got up and ran out. Okay. She filed a police report on December 10th, 
A warrant was issued for his arrest, and he decided to turn himself in. He was charged with felony domestic assault and battery by strangulation and spent just 15 minutes at the station, enough time to get his mugshot before pleading not guilty and being released on a $25,000 bond. Devin's attorney denies the allegations, but the police did confirm his girlfriend's injuries. And just a note, the attack was the end of their relationship, so they are no longer together. I'm glad she got away. Yeah. In January of this year, it was announced the case would go to trial in Oklahoma County, but no date has been set. I think it's still going through the system because I didn't find any updates after that. Yeah. Fair enough. Meanwhile, when the news broke that Devin had been charged with the assault, a former female friend of his thought, huh, nothing's happened with my case in the allegations I made against him five years ago. What? Maybe I should follow up. Also, I like the alliteration, former female friend. Didn't even notice. Because Oklahoma City was not the first incident where Devin's behavior allegedly turned violent. The former friend, whose name is out there, I'll just use her first name, which is Lisa, had been friends with Devin for about 15 years. Then one night in September of 2017, she and Devin had been out drinking with friends in New York City before all going back to Devin's apartment. She claims that Devin poured drinks for everyone and insisted that she take a specific glass. Lisa said she felt tired after consuming her drink, and Devin encouraged her to sleep over. He was like, you can just sleep on the couch. Eventually, their friends left the apartment, but Lisa was still on the couch. She later told CNN, quote, I remember waking up and I couldn't move. I couldn't really open my eyes, but I could hear what was happening and I could feel what was happening. She claimed Devin assaulted her, quote, for what seemed like an eternity. And then when he was done, he just left her there on the couch. The next day, she confronted Devin, this guy who had supposedly been her friend for more than a decade. But he denied any assault occurred and said he couldn't have sex because he's impotent. Even if he's impotent, doesn't mean he didn't rape her. That doesn't mean you still can't assault someone. Exactly. Lisa filed a police report and even sent the police the clothes she'd been wearing that night for DNA testing. But she never heard anything. So when Devin made headlines for the Oklahoma City assault, she decided to follow up, telling CNN, quote, Seeing that he was accused of assaulting someone else made me realize that I needed to do whatever I could to prevent him from hurting even more women. Good. Yeah. She was devastated to learn that the police had mistakenly believed she did not wish to press charges and they had closed the case. Mistakenly believed? Mm -hmm. Uh In a phone call with CNN, Devin said he remembered the night in question but denied the allegation saying, quote, we didn't have sex. The most recent report I found on this is from August of 2022, at which time the case was under investigation, but I don't think there have been any updates since. So I think that is still being investigated. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the women in both cases survived their alleged attacks, as did the victim of a murder-for-hire plot involving Joe Pesci. GP! We talked about this. We sure did. If you've listened to our episode on the shooting of stuntman Garrett Warren, then you're already familiar with this case. If you haven't listened to that episode, go lots of spoilers ahead. You should probably story. You should stop listening to this and check that one out first. Like seriously, I'm about to ruin that entire episode for you if you haven't heard it yet. But to give you a recap, between 1988 and 1992, Pesci was married to a woman named Claudia Haro. 
This was when he was at the height of his career. He was doing the Lethal Weapon franchise, Goodfellas, for which he won an Oscar, My Cousin Vinny, and of course, Home Alone. Here it comes. The rage of for Claudia just came back. <laughs> it was like I... I could see it in it, you. I felt it. Yep. Pesci and Claudia remained good friends even after they divorced, and mm-hmm. he would let her live in his guest house whenever she needed a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Cla- Claudia moved on with stuntman Garrett Warren, and Pesci was really happy for them. He was super supportive of the relationship. Claudia and Garrett married and had a daughter, but their marriage quickly fell apart. Their divorce led to a bitter custody battle, with Claudia throwing around false accusations that Garrett was sexually abusing their daughter. He was not. Claudia wanted Garrett out of the picture, so she hired a hitman to kill him. The shooter wanted $10,000, but Claudia didn't have that kind of money. And yet, she was able to pay it. She gave her brother, who acted as the middleman, the money while the two of them were standing outside of Joe Pesci's house. Investigators questioned Pesci and searched his property for evidence but didn't find anything, and he denied ever giving Claudia the money. However, both Garrett and one of the hitmen involved were photographed together at a party which took place at Pesci's house. There seemed to be way too many coincidences. However, Pesci was never charged with any involvement in the case. Mm-hmm. Claudia was charged but released on bail while she awaited trial. Her bail was set at one and a quarter million dollars and it's never been stated who paid it you'll be happy to know that not all of the actors from home alone faced criminal charges max younger brother kieran made his feature film debut in home alone as fuller you know about him he wets the bed he's currently most recognized thank you for laughing for that he's currently most recognized for his role as roman roy in the show succession which has earned him three primetime emmy nominations three golden globe nominations and the critics choice award for best supporting actor in a drama series i haven't watched that i've wanted to but i haven't seen it mm-hmm. hillary wolf now hillary saba who played kevin's sister megan in the movie stopped acting after the second home alone movie and uh went on to become an olympian She had been taking judo classes from the time she was seven years old and made history as the first American to win the Judo Junior World Championship. When she was 14, she became the youngest person in the history of U.S. Judo to win the Senior National Championships and went on to compete in the 1996 and 2000 Olympics. Snaps. Good for her. Can I ask, uh, judo's a martial arts right i knew you're gonna ask me this i don't fucking know what judo is kevin but she was really good at it (laughs) well hot damn and in 2017 she published a book called the not so zen mom parenting strategies for survival so she's killing it judo (laughs) judo chop your way through parenting Brenda Fricker, affectionately known as the Pigeon Lady from Home Alone 2, lost I New love York. her. I do, too. Oh, Kate, she's my spirit woman. She's like what I want to be. I she's see that for I you. Am. Yes. She's who I will become. She has had a prolific career. She won an Oscar in 1990 for her role in My Left Foot and has been nominated many times over for her work, including a nomination just this year from the Irish Film and Television Awards for the show Holding. She said she gets really lonely this time of year, which made me sad. Brenda, we love you. You've made such an impression on so many people. She said, quote, I'm old and I live alone. It can be very dark. She said to get through it, she has her dog, 
and she'll watch some good programs. Is she living in Ireland? Is mm-hmm. that where she is? Mm-hmm. Well, she she should go visit Enya's castle because I think Enya also lives there and has a castle and doesn't come out much. So there you go, Brenda. Kevin has a suggestion for you, and we strongly encourage she, you to take I it. I want to see a music video of an Enya an Enya Brenda collab. collaboration. Yes, that would go viral. Kay. Go to Aerolingus.com and let's book these tickets. Let's do it. Her advice to actors is if you're doing a scene and you think you're doing it wrong, just swear in the middle of it and then the director can't use it, which I love. Home Alone is wildly popular in Poland. Like (laughs) unbelievably popular primarily because the movie was released shortly after the end of Poland's communist regime. Oh shit. So it was like one of the first films that they were probably allowed to see. Wow. It came out in 1992 there. Prior to that, America had represented this unattainable paradise. At that time in Poland, Christmas was not a commercialized holiday. It could not be more opposite here. Stores start putting out Christmas stuff before Halloween. Just the other day, I was, I can't remember where I was. There's Valentine's Day stuff out on the shelves right now. Okay, we need to stop as a society. It's a lot. And just think about what's coming up in front of us. But the communist regime was very anti-Christmas. A child was thrilled if he got a piece of fruit under the tree. A luxury item, like a VCR, was out of the question unless you were incredibly wealthy. Because one VCR cost twice the amount of a person's annual salary there. Mm -hmm. Then communism falls, and here is this child hero who became an unwitting ambassador of what was at the time considered the better Western world. Kevin puts a VHS tape into the VCR. People in Poland probably went crazy, and just seeing all the presents under the tree, Poland's economy began to strengthen. More products were becoming available, and the film immediately struck a chord. What was the title in Polish? I don't. I can't say the Polish because I don't know the pronunciation. But it translated to Kevin. Kevin at home alone. Okay. Or Kevin alone at home. I think it was Kevin alone at home. I like that title better. Well, you can write John Hughes. Uh, actually, you can't. He's dead. Home Alone remains the biggest TV hit of every Christmas season in Poland. So much so. That back in 2010, the Polish channel that owns the rights to the movie decided not to air it that season for whatever reason. People lost their minds. There were countless online protests. So the channel was like, our bad, we'll air the movie. And when Home Alone came out in the U.S. in 1990, it was actually panned by critics. Entertainment Weekly gave the film a D rating, saying, quote, Hughes can't resist turning Home Alone into a sadistic festival of adult bashing. The movie devolves into an egregious Three Stooges pain fest. We're meant to giggle and clap along with Kevin as the crooks get their heads singed with blowtorches and walk barefoot on glass. Um, yeah. Yeah. We are meant to laugh. This movie was every kid's dream. Any kid who ever had to stay home alone for any period of time during their childhood Worried what might happen if someone tried to break into their house. And this movie made that kid a hero. Siskel and Ebert also gave the film a poor review, with Ebert arguing that the movie's plot just wasn't plausible. He couldn't have possibly created all those traps himself. So yeah, so this is the issue with adult reviewers yes. reviewing fi- kids' films, mm-hmm. because they can't see past their own ideals uh, exactly. of what their age is currently. Exactly. And that's, that is, 
you know, that needs to be considered. Ebert was also critical of how Kevin reacts when he realizes he's been left alone, stating that a real kid would probably cry or try calling someone or ask a neighbor for help. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Roger. May you rest in peace. But also, like, do you know a kid? <laughs> Despite seemingly hating the character, he did like Macaulay Culkin, saying, quote, he's such a confident and gifted little actor that I'd like to see him in a story I could care more about. Home Alone was the number one movie at the box office 12 weeks in a row, from November to February. It grossed $476.7 million worldwide, making it the most successful comedy at that time, a record it held for 27 years. Not only that, it was the third highest grossing film, not just comedy, but third highest grossing film in history wow. at that time. At that time. And it's still in the top 15 most successful comedies of all time. And here in Chicago, it's become a tradition with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. They screen the movie while playing the score by John Williams, and it's happening this weekend. <gasps> Fun. And on December 8th, Tracy Connor, who played the checkout clerk in the store and asks, are you here all by yourself? She'll be there for a talk before the show. I've always wanted to go to that, but I've just never had the chance. It's also kind of expensive. And that's it. You filthy animals. Yeah, filthy animals. That was great, Kate. Thanks. If you have... Any memories you'd like to share about your connection to Home Alone or any other fun facts you'd like to add, let us know in the comments on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at... Horrorwood Podcast. Or shoot us an email at... Horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And you can jump on over to Patreon, be like Glinda Allen Pratt, and subscribe at... Patreon.com slash Horrorwoodpodcast. And that is it. We're going to go on our little tour of the Home Alone We're going to go there. I'm excited for that. I am too. I've been to the house. I've been to a few of the locations. I haven't been to the school, so we'll try to- Are we going to go there? Yeah. I don't know if it's- I mean, I doubt we can get in, but we can go. Oh, yeah. I don't think it looked good if we went to a school and was like, hey, can we come inside? (laughs) We do a podcast. Hey, it's just us. Hi. Yeah. All right. Well, don't stay home. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that joke. (laughs) I'm keeping it in there. I could quote that movie better. Oh, great. Oh, great. Goodbye. You look over and I just have a bunch of pigeons on me. And I'm like, it's happening. (laughs) Finally. Yes.